Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Caroline Ballard. Coming up, we'll find out what role Wyoming's congressional delegation is playing to sweep out Obama-era regulations. We'll also hear how activists around the state are organizing after the Women's March on Washington. You know, I think the marches were really, really positive on Saturday, but it's now, how do we move forward? You know those noisy little critters that squeak at you on top of mountains? We'll find out about research on how climate change is affecting the American pika. Once they got to the top of the mountain, there wouldn't be any place left for them to go, and we wouldn't have pikas anymore. And we'll talk to former Wyoming Senator Al Simpson, who's participating in efforts to repeal the 2010 U.S. Supreme Court decision, Citizens United. Those conversations and more coming up on Open Spaces on Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Melody Edwards. This week, Congress unleashed an assault on Obama-era regulations, and Wyoming lawmakers played a big role in the effort. Congressional correspondent Matt Laszlo has the story from Washington on the new effort that's angering the environmental community. Ever heard of the Congressional Review Act? Me neither. That is until Wyoming senior Senator Mike Enzi gave me a tutorial on it. And it's the ability for Congress to pass... Uh, a clawback on any regulation that's passed within 45 days after the time that it's published and provided there enough signatures from the House and the Senate. That Congressional Review Act had only been used once in Congress's history until Senator Enzi employed it to kill a last-minute Bill Clinton regulation that dealt with workplace injuries. It was very poorly written, so we went after it. I got to lead the charge on it, and it passed both houses. And then we changed presidents. And the new president was more than willing to sign it, was willing to, was able to see how a regulation pushed through at the last minute often has a lot of flaws in it, and that one did. Once little known, the act has become a powerful tool for the Republicans who now run Washington. This week, Republicans in Congress used the act to go after five Obama-era regulations. One scraps a regulation to keep coal ash away from streams, and another kills a requirement that oil and gas companies disclose their payments to foreign governments. Enzi says Congress has the final say on rules and regulations. We're the ones that write these laws. Supposedly, they think that we ask them to do those regulations. There's usually no indication that we intended that kind of a regulation, and consequently, we ought to be able to say whether to do it or not. Wyoming's junior Senator John Barrasso started the week using the act to take aim at a Bureau of Land Management rule to reduce methane, known as the venting and flaring rule. He says he's not done yet. President Obama basically was the uh, regulator-in-chief, and there was been a uh, regulatory rampage to the point of over 3,000 regulations with an impact of over $900 billion to the economy. Barrasso and other Republicans are especially taking aim at new environmental protections and one agency in particular. The worst uh, offense was by the, uh, the EPA, over $300 billion worth of regulations and the impact that they've had on jobs, on the economy, and on take-home pay for working families. And even as President Obama was a lame duck, after Election Day, 
he still came out with 198 regulations to a cost of over $100 billion. Environmentalists and most Democrats are taken aback by the aggressive posture the GOP is taking. Virginia Democrat Don Beyer says the Republican onslaught against regulations is misguided. In, in many ways, a lot of what government does is trying to protect the people from either a, a environmental abuses or, or abuses that happen in business. These are really good things. You know, no regulations passed without years of study and many public hearings and often tens of thousands of pieces of input from the American public. So it's, uh, I think it's silly and unnecessary. Congressman Beyer also bemoans the executive order that President Trump signed that scraps two regulations for every new one the government adds. But he also laughs it off. This president seems so hostile to regulation. The executive order doesn't sound like much. I, I have trouble imagining what regulation he would put forward anyway. But Wyoming's newly minted congresswoman, Liz Cheney, says people should get used to it. She adds that the GOP isn't going to stop unwinding regulations anytime soon. Um, you know, the, the regulatory state has just expanded, you know, out of control. And the impact and the cost it's having on the economy and just, you know, it's, it's strangling businesses and strangling economic growth, certainly, you know, as we've talked about before, the fossil fuel industry as well. And we've got to get it back under control. So I think you're seeing um, movement on multiple fronts to get that done. Democrats and the environmental community are bracing for the battles on multiple fronts as well. But with the party locked out of power in Washington... Many are getting ready to tearfully say goodbye to much of President Obama's environmental legacy. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. There has been a lot of energy news in the first few weeks of the Trump administration, from cabinet picks to environmental regulations. Here to talk about some of it is our Inside Energy reporter, Lee Patterson, joining us from Denver. Hi, Lee. Hey there, Caroline. So we have a lot to talk about. Let's start with President Trump's picks for energy-related cabinet positions. There are a handful of them. So where is Congress in that confirmation process? Yeah, so there are a couple of different um, energy-related cabinet positions. Um, There's Rick Perry. He's the nominee for Department of Energy, and he's the former governor of Texas. Then we have up for head of Interior, uh, Interior Secretary, that's Ryan Zinke, He's a Republican congressman from Montana. And Interior is important. It, um, uh, that agency manages millions of acres of federal land and, of course, all of the natural resources on those lands. So this is a big one for um, Western states. And then, of course, um, another important position is the head of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. And President Trump's pick um, to head up that agency is Scott Pruitt. He is Oklahoma's attorney general. That agency, of course, is tasked with protecting um, human health and the environment, and that includes implementing regulations that President Trump has said he wants to repeal, like the Clean Power Plan. So some Democrats have been boycotting hearings for these three nominees. They've kind of been slowing down the process. Wyoming Senator John Barrasso is head of the Senate Committee on Environment and Public Works. He called these boycotts political theater. This week he told reporters that a newly elected president has a right to their cabinet. So all three did actually make it through committee, but they haven't been put up for a full Senate vote yet. Um, They are widely expected to be confirmed. And the new Secretary of State also has energy connections as well, Rex Tillerson. Yes, he does. Rex Tillerson um, was the former CEO of ExxonMobil. Um, He had been with the company for 
you know, 40 years. Environmental groups like the Sierra Club and 350.org have come out strongly against Tillerson because of um, these ties to the oil industry. And some lawmakers in Washington are concerned about his business dealings in Russia when he was with Exxon. Um, but Rex Tillerson was confirmed and then formally sworn in as the Secretary of State on Wednesday night. And um, during that ceremony, President Trump said that Tillerson had led Exxon, quote, magnificently. So let's talk about some of the regulations and policies that were on the chopping block this week. Sure. Um, so let's start with the stream protection rule. Um, Congress voted to repeal this Obama-era regulation. It's called the Stream Protection Rule, and it's meant to reduce the impact of coal mining on streams and waterways. So basically, the rule would have created a sort of buffer to restrict mining operations within a, a certain distance from those bodies of water, from, from streams and waterways. Wyoming's congressional delegation has long opposed the rule, saying it was essentially designed to put the coal industry out of business. And Wyoming state regulators um, also said that the rule really wasn't designed for the arid climate of the West. So this week, both the House and Senate voted to repeal that rule. And then another one, another important one next on that list um, relates to methane, the Bureau of Land Management's venting and flaring rule. So methane is a powerful greenhouse gas, and the rule was designed to reduce methane leaks um, from energy production on federal land. In addition to that, it would restrict flaring, and flaring is basically when producers burn off all of that extra natural gas that is produced at drilling sites. Industry, um, industry had said this rule is expensive and would cost jobs, but on the flip side, all of that natural gas that's leaked or flared, that could also represent a sort of financial loss. And I think it's worth noting that the state of Colorado has its own methane regulations in place. And those were developed by a coalition of industry and environmentalists. And the federal regulations that we're talking about were actually modeled on, on Colorado's regulations. So this week, the House voted to reverse the rule. Um, so Congress has essentially begun the process of scrapping it. There was a bill in the works that would have sold off millions of acres of federal land. Can you tell me about that? It's called the Disposal of Excess Federal Lands Act, and it was introduced in the House last month. And as you said, it would have directed the Interior Department to sell off um, three million plus acres of federal land in 10 states, including Wyoming. There was a huge backlash to this bill. There were rallies in Montana, New Mexico, and in Casper. And constitu constituents were basically worried that these sales would end up limiting um, their access for activities like hunting and fishing. Congress um, heard those complaints, and that bill was withdrawn on Thursday. Well, thanks so much, Lee, for your insight. Sure thing. That was our Inside Energy reporter, Lee Patterson. She joined us to talk about energy issues playing out in Washington and how they could affect the West. Next on the show, we'll hear two stories on the effects of climate change. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Melody Edwards. Climate change is revealing Wyoming artifacts hidden by ice for 10,000 years. Scientists are flocking to the melting snow and ice fields, and the world is watching. Penny Preston reports. 
The Prince of Monaco, among others, is giving a lot of money to support a science emerging in the mountains of Wyoming. Climate change is a, well, first of all, I believe that it is absolutely real and, and that it is happening and that uh, it will happen no matter what. Prince Albert II talked about climate change and his foundation's support of scientific research on climate change when he came to Cody in 2013. His visit celebrated the first Camp Monaco Prize, a $100,000 scientific grant funded by a new cooperative. The Prince Albert II Foundation, the Draper Museum of Natural History at the Buffalo Bill Center of the West, and the University of Wyoming Biodiversity Institute. In Monaco last June, the Prince awarded the second Camp Monaco Prize to three scientists studying snowmelt revelations. Jury chair and Draper founding curator Dr. Charles Preston joined the Prince at the Monaco News Conference. Preston says scientists are combing the mountains in and around Yellowstone every summer. As these ice fields melt, we're, we're seeing things that no one's seen perhaps for 10,000 years in some cases. So very exciting and, and it's, it's drawn in scientists from a lot of different disciplines in different areas. And they're collecting biological artifacts and identifying biological and human artifacts from, uh, from very high elevation sites. Very exciting stuff. Dr. Craig Lee was one of the researchers who received the Monaco Prize. In 2007, he recovered one of the oldest intact wooden artifacts ever found in an ice patch, part of an atlatl, an ancient spear throwing tool. It is 10,300 years old. When he found the man-made object near Yellowstone, Oh, it was unbelievably exciting. My, my jaw dropped at coming across that atlatl foreshaft uh, it was clearly uh, an object that had been worked uh, by, by humans and had been uh, transported to that location from a, a different area. Wyoming archaeologist Dr. Larry Todd is an emeritus professor at Colorado State University. He retired to Matizzi, where he spent his youth herding sheep in the mountains nearby. Last summer, Todd's team of researchers found tens of thousands of artifacts in the mountains near Matitsi and the highest known teepee rings in Wyoming. They're not um, in the size range that look like vision quests or they're not hunting blinds and they're at elevations of over 11,300 feet or highest site is. Todd says that means people were living and making a living at high elevations as long as 10,000 years ago. The, the magnet that drew us up there are the melting ice and snow patches that, as they melt, are exposing archaeological materials and organic materials and biological materials. They're sort of opening the door on an extremely rich um, archive of paleoclimate, paleoenvironmental data. Todd says scientists have to work fast once the artifacts are revealed and once they're exposed, they deteriorate very rapidly. Todd is also concerned about looting of the sites. He says they reveal something not known before. More and more of the archaeologists working in the high elevation are seeing indications of entire family groups for long periods of time at multiple seasons of the year 
it's really changing our perspective of the way the high elevations were incorporated into human behavioral systems. Todd says the ancient civilizations did not find the bare patches of ground he's seeing. His research indicates the artifacts weren't buried under the ice. They were probably deposited on the site, and the ice now melting out. So what drew Wyoming's first peoples to the coldest, highest places? Todd says Paleo-Indians who came to the Absorca Mountains followed animals that found grass and water in the mountains. They also provide an escape from bugs and things like that, um, and they're also a little cooler. So these were maybe magnets for a lot of the game animals, and therefore they were probably magnets for a lot of the predators of which people were part. The snowmelt science is also revealing something else. People spent a lot of time in Wyoming's mountaintops as soon as they could. Fairly soon after the extreme high elevations were being deglaciated, people are up there. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Penny Preston in Cody. There aren't many critters crazy enough to live year-round on mountaintops. So any that do live there have got to be tough, like the American pika, an adorable little round-eared and noisy animal that lives in the rocks at the highest elevations. But are pikas tough enough to survive a warming planet? Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards talked with University of Wyoming researcher Ember Hall, who's trying to answer that question. For people who don't know, pikas are, they're most closely related to rabbits. A lot of people think they're rodents, they're not. Um, they inhabit these high elevation environments. And in fact, they're particularly interesting because they're one of the only high elevation mammals that remains active throughout the year. So a lot of mammals get out of town when it gets cold, right? They migrate or um, others do what I would do, which is just sleep all winter. But pikas are really interesting because they don't do that. And so because they remain active throughout the winter, they have to sort of incorporate these really unique strategies that allow them to persist in environments that's you know, both very cold but also extremely variable. So one of the key strategies that they incorporate is they, during the summer, when there's green vegetation available, they actually harvest that vegetation from the meadows around those rocky areas. And then they take that vegetation back to a central location, then they begin to pile that up. And what happens is over time, they can actually build these huge piles. I mean, some of them, by the end of the haying season, some of them are as big as a bathtub, which again is incredible when you think about this tiny animal. And, and it's not like they have hands or arms and are carrying this, you know, they're carrying all this vegetation in their mouth. You know, initially we thought that as climate change progressed, pikas were going to sort of move up the mountain to, to be able to access cooler temperatures. And that once they got to the top of the mountain, there wouldn't be any place left for them to go and, and we wouldn't have pikas anymore. That was sort of the, the idea in the early 2000s. Well, what's happened as we've been able to do more work on the species is that we're starting to see that certainly in some places, that's absolutely what's happening. Um, places that are particularly arid, like the Great Basin, but we're not seeing that consistently across the species range. So in some places, they're persisting in areas where our models say that they shouldn't. So that really got us thinking about, you know, what's going on with those populations? Like, what are they, are they experiencing things differently? Are they doing something differently? How are they living in these areas where, you know, we sort of thought that they shouldn't be necessarily? So 
We've been using a couple things. One, um, there's a lot of variability going on, and so that has sort of caused us to want to be able to assess temperature conditions that the animal is actually experiencing. So we do that through um, what are called eye buttons. It's uh, maybe about the size of a nickel, and it's essentially a very simple thermometer encased in a kind of a silver can. And these sensors can record up to 2,000 temperature readings, um, and we're able to sort of say how often we want them to record temperatures. So that's the, the first thing that we use to answer our question. The second thing that we use, it's a, it's a traditional trail camera. It's powered by um, regular uh, AA batteries. Um, we recorded about 4,000 videos, just over 4,000 videos of pica activity. Okay, so these are some videos that I pulled so we'll start, start with this guy. So in that case, he took um, some vegetation that he had harvested sort of out of the video frame. And, and it was gigantic, it was like these huge. huge leaves. Yeah, one of the things that we've been quantifying is the size of the food load that they're carrying. And that's allowing us to test a hypothesis about sort of if you're going to forage during um, thermally stressful times, do you sort of go get your groceries all in one in one run, or do you actually make a lot more frequent trips but with smaller amounts of food? This guy was into the idea of just like I'm just going to take one trip with a bunch. Yeah, of stuff. he was he was a one <laughs> one trip wonder. Yeah. You can hear sort of that um, kind of background chatter. That's actually another pika. So they they um, arrange their territories such that they are fairly close to each other. So they're pretty social. They're absolutely not social. Um, do not be fooled by their cuteness. They are highly territorial. Um, they're very aggressive, and in fact, they, they defend their hay piles very aggressively, and you can see why. They put a lot of effort into making sure that this pile is gonna get them through the winter, and they, uh, they pretty fiercely defend them. They, uh, they're, they're surprisingly aggressive for their small size and cuteness. This is an example, oh actually I want to show you this one. So this is an example of a nocturnal video. One of the interesting things that we found is that pikas are doing a fair bit of foraging at night, which is again something if you picked up a mammal guidebook, um, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't really see in there. They're classified as diurnal animals. But what we've, what we've realized is they're actually a lot more active at night than, than we ever thought. Is becoming um, active at night something that they are doing to adjust their behavior to warming daytime temperatures? That's what we're investigating right now. So based on um, the videos that we've reviewed so far, we are seeing an increase in nocturnal foraging activity at sites where the conditions are particularly warm. One important thing to think about, though, is that if they are foraging at night, is that truly a successful strategy that will allow them to persist amidst warming temperatures, or is that sort of a last-ditch effort that gets them by for a little bit longer but on a population level won't facilitate persistence? And that's, that's still an open question. Ember Hall says twice the American pika has been petitioned for listing on the endangered species list, but both times it was turned down because of a lack of scientific data on the species. Hall says she hopes in the future her research can help solve that problem. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards.
To see some of the videos and data Hall has been collecting on pikas, visit our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. After our break, we'll talk to some of the women's marchers and we'll learn about the pros and cons of school suspensions next on Open Spaces. back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Melody Edwards. After President Donald Trump was inaugurated, marches and protests were held in cities around the world and in six communities in Wyoming, including Cheyenne, Casper, Rock Springs, Cody, Lander, and Pinedale. Thousands of Wyomingites came out for the marches, and now many of them are asking themselves, what comes next? Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard reports. On a recent Wednesday night, the Wyoming Art Party opened its studio in the Laramie Plains Civic Center to the public. People started filtering in after school and work, and artist June Glasson, one of the three women who run the Wyoming Art Party, introduced herself Good. to a newcomer. I'm June. I, have we met before? I feel I'm like Kylie. You, did you come to any of the workshops or no? No, I haven't. Okay. Well, um, we're not quite sure how the structure of this evening is going to go. We're just basically opening up the space. Okay. Um, we have blank postcards over there, and then we have um, a wall where we've kind of left it open for people to write um, concerns. Um, any kind of ideas, action items, um, information you want to share with people. Ever since President Trump was elected in November, the Wyoming Art Party Studios have become a de facto meeting place for people who were unhappy with the results of the election. They held workshops where people could make signs for the Women's March. And on the day of the march, they organized a caravan to Cheyenne in decorated cars. But when that was over... Glasson and her colleagues didn't feel finished. You know, I think the marches were really, really positive on Saturday, but it's now, how do we move forward? How do we do this better? How do we, you know, the tricky part now is going to be harnessing that energy. About 50 people, mostly women, showed up. The focus of the meeting was a little all over the place. It's clear individuals had reasons for coming, but that hasn't yet formed into a clear platform. Some people got up to make announcements about what they're interested in pursuing. Uh, my name is Shelby Shadwell, um, and I am uh, a local volunteer and a state organizer for a national organization that is interested in one issue that kind of underlies every issue, which is giant money in politics. Um, While Glasson says they're not political and are simply advocating for human rights, the agenda definitely skews progressive with concerns about abortion rights, concealed carry laws, and LGBT discrimination. The mood in the room isn't angry, but these people are fired up and ready to work. Dakota Metzger is decorating a postcard with her cell phone close by. She works at the Albany County Safe Project and is on call tonight. I'm here because I want to fight for VAWA. VAWA is the Violence Against Women Act. Um, it's one of the many things proposed by Donald Trump to cut funding towards. He's looking to cut funding entirely towards the Violence Against Women Act, as well as the office itself. Across the state, in Pinedale, Kendra Cross participated in the Women's and Allies March there for similar reasons. Um, I personally have had um, experience of people around me experiencing domestic violence, uh, suicide. Um, my own mother, after she divorced divorced from my father, remarried into a very abusive relationship, and ended, 
ended up shooting herself. Cross says she felt apprehensive about marching in the first place. Pinedale is a small, conservative town, and Sublet County went 77% for Donald Trump in the last election. In the end, over 100 people came out to the march there, but not everyone was happy about it. There was a, a sheriff that drove by and uh, thumbs down the parade. And I have heard stories of one woman said that her neighbor used to, to, <laughs> to plow the snow in front of her house and... Um, the day after the march, everything else was plowed except her, her driveway. But Cross says she won't be backing down. We're here too, and it's okay if we think differently than you. We have ideas and we have value to bring to this community, and um, we'd, lo- we'd love to have conversations about it. Uh, so it, it, it is sticking your neck out there, but at the same time, it's, it's standing up and saying, this is, this is who I am and we belong here. This is where we live too. Cross is helping organize get-togethers in Pinedale, similar to the ones in Laramie, to figure out what to do next. The first meeting drew a pretty big crowd. 30 people showed up to our meeting, which was pretty, pretty incredible. That I, I kind of planned for 10 or 15, but it, for 30 people to show up um, was pretty exciting. With the help of social media, groups of people in communities like Casper, Lander, Cody, Rock Springs, and Jackson are all taking similar action writing letters, making phone calls, and lobbying for specific issues during the legislative session. State Senator Chris Rothfuss of Laramie says he hasn't noticed an uptick in the amount of feedback he's gotten this legislative session, but that constituent input this year has been thoughtful, and that factors into how he votes. The quality of that, I think, has been excellent this year in in terms of receiving uh, personal viewpoints, individually written. These are not just carbon copy emails all of the time sent out to every legislator that they can find, which honestly are not very effective. Back at the Wyoming Art Party meeting, June Glasson says they are still trying to figure out what is effective and how to organize. You know, I think the biggest concerns with this many people and this many issues and concerns, it's hard to figure out how to organize and structure this sort of thing, which, you know, when I call it a thing, I'm not sure what it is exactly yet. The Wyoming Art Party's meetings are getting more focused. Their next one will be on how the state legislature works and will feature a guest speaker. And the next big march in the state already has a date, April 15th. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Caroline Ballard. Since the 2010 Citizens United decision by the U.S. Supreme Court, an unprecedented amount of money is being spent in elections, sometimes anonymously. One cross-partisan organization, American Promise, is leading an effort to add a 28th Amendment to the Constitution to overturn that decision. He told Wyoming Public Radio's Maggie Mullen most Americans would like to see reasonable limits on election spending. Well, if you poll people and say, oh, do you think there's an undue influence of just money in politics, unlimited money, you're going to find about 75% of the people will respond and say yes. Now, as to what to do about it, they may not. And then if you put it, do you think anonymous money affects American democracy, you get about 90%. And, and that's, what we're, that's where we're at. We're at a situation because of the worst 
Supreme Court decision, in my mind, I'm a lawyer, that doesn't make any difference either, but and the worst decision that ever came out was uh, Citizens United, which said that a corporation could be a person. There is no way on God's earth that the First Amendment can be read that way. How they distort it, I have no idea, but a person has a right of free expression and free speech. You don't give it to a corporation. Anyway, this is madness. People equate that money with, with corruption and ineptness. You mentioned that different people will see different solutions to this issue, but what solution are you sort of proposing? Well, it's called the 28th Amendment. It's a group of Democrats and Republicans and concerned citizens who are saying, you know, rather than go through legislation uh, in the Congress to, to, to try to change it, because once you get into the Congress, you got the guys who are getting the money. And they're not about to change. When you can get an anonymous bundle of money for 25 grand for your congressional campaign, you're not really interested in too much reform. So we've got together and uh, and Democrats and Republicans and uh, go for a constitutional amendment, 28th Amendment, which will say simply that every state has the ability to make their own laws as to how money will come into a campaign instead of some blanket national thing. And, and, uh, and, and it's very clear that it doesn't impinge on the First Amendment uh, rights of, of citizens. So it's, uh, there are several drafts of it, but all of it does the same thing. You get no more anonymous money. You got to cough up your name. Who are you? What do you do? Uh, what's your business? How'd you get in the game where you can give 10 million bucks and sit off on the sidelines in the dark? It's called dark money, and that's exactly what it is. Can you explain a little bit how to add an amendment to the Constitution? I just, I imagine that that's not an easy or quick process. It's like giving dry birth to a porcupine. That's quite a phrase, actually, when you think <laughs> about it, which, which means it's difficult. Very, very difficult. Two-thirds of the body, and, and then it goes out to the states, and three-fourths of the states have to ratify it. And that's a long haul. But by the time uh, we go through another couple of cycles, uh, when somebody uh, just picks up $10 bucks, or maybe a presidential campaign where the winner has picked up $50 million bucks from anonymous sources, people will have a belly full of it and be more interested in the amendment. I mean, you're going to have to go through Mitch McConnell, who's a good guy, good friend. He's the, he's the majority leader. Mitch is a firm believer that it doesn't matter. You know, money is the mother's milk of politics, and there's no way to limit it, and you shouldn't. So it'll be tough to get through. Plenty tough. And if it isn't during my lifetime, I tap on my box and tell me how it went. So most of our conversation is sort of concerned, you know, uh, money dominating politics on the national stage. But I did want to ask you, do you see the effects of Citizens United play out in Wyoming politics? Oh, sure. Sure. How do you think that gal Gore got in the game? She's spreading money around like uh, Croesus. And I, and I did want to confirm that you're talking about Susan Gore with the Wyoming Liberty Group? That's exactly who I'm talking about, yes. She's very rigid, right-wing, very conservative. There's nothing being wrong with being conservative, but you don't have to be extreme. You don't have to carry guns to your bathroom in your house and 
and and get rid of all gays and lesbians in Wyoming because she doesn't like them. I mean, sure, she's in the game. You betcha. And she puts up another name, and another guy looks like he's given it. It's usually about social issues. You don't think that's going on in Wyoming? Let me tell you, it was in this campaign big time. That was former U.S. Senator Al Simpson speaking with Wyoming Public Radio's Maggie Mullen about efforts to repeal the 2010 Citizens United Supreme Court decision. Out-of-school suspension is increasingly seen as a contributing factor to poor academic outcomes. Students get sent home and get behind in their schoolwork, and some never catch up. In response, schools across the nation, including several in Wyoming, have created alternatives. Wyoming Public Radio's education reporter Tennessee Watson has more. The two days I went to visit the Albany County Expelled and Suspended Program, or ACES, there were no students. Luckily, I guess it's a good thing when no one in the district is suspended or expelled. That's Dwayne Tillman, the program's one and only teacher. He's been here 15 years. But uh, it's been a rarity this year. This is our first week that way that it's kind of been slow. So He says he can have upwards of 10 students in his class at a time. Some show up for a day, some stay for a year if they've been expelled. And they're in any grade, K through 12. The other day we had a third grader here, and we also had a uh, sophomore at the same time. So I was kind of switching back and forth between working on some reading and writing skills. And then you can see on the board we were with the, the sophomore working on some biochemistry and talking about ionic bonds. This program is a partnership between Albany County School District Number 1 and the Laramie Youth Crisis Center. The classes take place at the Crisis Center, which doubles as a home for kids who need shelter. Mr. Tillman's classroom is right off the kitchen, and it's pretty cozy. There are several tables that kids write on with dry erase markers. There are lingering bits of math equations in purple and blue, and a closet full of supplies. He shows me paints and a sizable collection of young adult fiction, and... I also have some Lego sets you can see on the bottom where they can actually build or or tear something apart. His first priority is solving emotional struggles before he starts in on math problems. You know, sometimes a kid will come here and they'll be um, in a pretty elevated state, agitated state. And a lot of times what we try to do is if we can just get that kid to, you know, give him space. Maybe you just need to take a moment to just write about some things that are bothering you or you could draw or paint and... And there's even a counselor on hand. So if this is all about supporting kids academically and emotionally, why even remove them from school? I asked Rob Boehner, vice principal at Laramie Junior High School. He says suspension is not just a deterrent and a consequence. But it's also to also help the other students who are in the school to make sure they maintain a uh, harassment-free and safe environment as well. Boehner works closely with Mr. Tillman. He says ACES creates a critical space for a timeout for everyone involved, the student, their classmates, the teacher, but without setting a kid back academically. If the ACES program did not exist and students were merely just suspended home, I think we just see students become more and more disconnected with the schools, a larger dropout, and I, I think it's important for kids to know that they have somebody who cares. A teacher I know passed my number to the mom of one of her students who had recently been suspended, and she gave me a call. That's how I met Demi Greenemeyer. Hi. Hello. I'm Tennessee. I'm Demi. Nice to meet you. Me too. 
Damon! Her 12-year-old son, Damon, is in sixth grade at Laramie Junior High. Damon's little sister, Kaylee, and his dog also participated in the interview. Is that your dog? Yeah. What's, his, what's her name? Uh, Lexi. Damon has been suspended twice since he moved to Laramie almost two years ago from Torrington. The first time in fifth grade was for one day, and again this year for three days. So what did you think of, um, of ACES? It was, it was like a good program, I guess. Yeah? Yeah. I like got caught up in my homework, and they made some stuff more easy to understand. Damon says focusing at ACES was easier. I don't know. It was like good because there weren't that many kids in like one area, and I like wasn't able and I wasn't like talking a lot. At school he has a tendency to talk and that's more or less how he got suspended. But he wants to do well academically. So he's figured out how to bring what worked for him at ACES into his regular classroom. He imagines the peaceful vibe he felt there. Um like I I have this like little pod group type thing in like all my classes so I just picture myself just with them. He says he wouldn't have figured that out staying at home. I would have probably just like fallen behind in my grades more because I feel like I would be like more distracted. And if ACES wasn't an option, it wouldn't have been easy for his mom. He's already 12, so he can't stay at home by himself now. But like before, I would have to like find coverage for work or switch shifts and stuff like that. Damon knows it stresses his parents out when he gets in trouble, so... He wants to avoid getting suspended again. The only thing that might bring Damon back to ACES is his love for skateboarding. He knows that on the side, Mr. Tillman sometimes teaches a skateboard building class. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Tennessee Watson. Wrapping up, we'll talk with comedian and activist Francesca Ramsey. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Caroline Ballard. The University of Wyoming Martin Luther King Jr. Days of Dialogue wrap up this weekend. The event's keynote speaker was Francesca Ramsey, a comedian, actress, and activist who hosts the MTV News web series Decoded, which talks about race, pop culture, and other, quote, uncomfortable things. She joined me to discuss how she has carved out her own role in the entertainment and activist communities. I went to school for acting, and then I studied graphic design, and, you know, YouTube did not exist when I was in school, so I did not know that it would become a path for me to create content and open doors in entertainment. So I think I kind of embody this weird hybrid of activist is what I'm saying, like actress, activist. And I think that that's really cool. And I think that's what's so great about what's happening right now is that you can really create your own career. You don't have to wait for anyone to give you an opportunity. You don't have to look for the perfect job. You can really craft based on the things that you're interested in, the skills that you possess um, using the internet. You went viral after creating the video stuff white girls say to black girls stuff because we're on the radio here how do you come up with the ideas for your videos 
Well, I can't take all the credit for that one because there was another video that had gone viral um, a few months prior called Stuff Girls Say. And, you know, YouTube, just like the internet, is very much about everybody creating their own parodies and lending their voice to topics in ways that are authentic to them. So when Stuff Girls Say went viral, I thought it was really funny, but the accompanying parody stuff black girls say didn't really speak to me as a black girl from the suburbs of South Florida. And so um, I took a risk and decided to kind of combine the titles and create something that was more personal to me. And I think that that's just what I've always continued to do with my work, to look at what other people are talking about and see where there's a void in the conversation where maybe I'm not seeing people say something that I wish that they were saying, or I have a particular take on a topic that I think is unique. Part of your keynote speech is about using social media responsibly. What does that look like to you? It's really interesting because I think a lot of people don't realize the repercussions of the things that they post online, both positive and negative. You know, I never in a million years expected my video to get 12 million views and, you know, lead to Anderson Cooper and getting an agent and all these amazing things in my life. But on the uh, inverse side, There are lots of people who say things on the internet without really thinking about the fact that they are broadcasting it. It's kind of like having a megaphone and sharing. Um, Maybe you're misguided or misinformed or just straight out bigoted uh, opinions on a certain topic with a huge audience. And so we've seen people lose their jobs. You know, we've seen um, political figures sharing photos that are not appropriate or saying things about, you know, our former president, President Obama or Michelle Obama, um, and having some really uh, harsh consequences. So what I really try to encourage people to do, and sometimes, you know, I don't always think the punishment fits the crime. I've seen some young people that have gotten kicked out of school for things that I don't necessarily think that's the best course of action. But I try to tell young people and just people of all backgrounds, if you wouldn't feel comfortable saying it to your parents or to your boss, I wouldn't post it on the internet. One thing that you have talked about in your videos is being an ally. Wyoming is a predominantly white state. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, it's 92% white. So how can someone be an ally in a state with such a small minority population? Well, again, I think what's really awesome about the internet is we are having the chance to be exposed to different types of people in conversations that we might not get a chance to interact with at home. And so we are learning about people from all different walks of life. Um, and even myself, as you know, a straight, cis, black woman, an able-bodied woman, I have to be conscious of my own privilege so that I can go ahead and support people with disabilities or people from the LGBT community. And I don't necessarily have to interact with that community on a daily basis in order to support and uplift them. You know, we're seeing a lot of people being motivated to call their congressmen, call their senators, um, you know, sharing articles and just kind of talking to people in your community that might have misconceptions around some of these issues, um, you don't actually have to be surrounded by that community in order to lend your support. How do you respond to people who say that you're the one perpetuating racism when you talk (laughs) about race or or point out race in, in things that happen in the news? Oh, I love this one. And I hear it a lot. I use the analogy that talking about a problem doesn't create the problem the same way talking about cancer does not create cancer. You know, if you want to address an issue, and I, and I can use the cancer example as well, 
you have to study it and you have to do research and there has to be people that come forward and say, you know what, I have cancer and this is what I tried and it didn't work or I found this new thing and I went to this place or whatever. Um, and I feel the same way when it comes to issues surrounding social justice. Talking about racism is not creating it the same way not talking about it is not going to alleviate it or help people that are victims of this oppressive system. Um, I think when people say that, it's really a reflection of their own discomfort with the issue and also their misunderstanding, which to me signifies that we do need to continue talking about it. The United States is facing a lot of polarization right now, and people are feeling very passionate on every side of every issue. There's Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter. So when it comes to race relations, especially in all these things that we're seeing right now, There's no quick fix, but what do you think is the most important thing that needs to happen for there to be at least more understanding between people on different sides of issues? I think what we're seeing a lot of is people being misinformed. And if you have not been exposed to certain types of people or certain conversations, then it's easy to be misinformed about them. And our media does play a large role in that. And so it is really important to diversify the types of media that you're consuming, the things that you're reading, the things that you're watching. But I also think for people who are in positions of privilege, and again, I'll use myself as an example, as a straight person, I have many encounters with other straight people where they say misinformed things about LGBT folks that they would never say if they knew a member of that community was there. And so that's when you really have to get out of your comfort zone and make sure that you can have those tough conversations and stand up for those communities because those are situations and environments that my voice can be valuable where someone else isn't there and I can uplift those communities in ways that I think are really important. So I know it's really, really difficult, and I think that most people's inclination, especially when it comes to talking about race, is to ignore it or pretend that it's not an issue, Um, but I don't believe anything gets solved that way. And so I think a little bit of getting out of our comfort zone, but also doing our homework. There's so many amazing resources online, whether it's MTV Decoded, my web series, hey, plug it up, Um, or, you know, there's so many great um, documentaries. uh, uh, Ava DuVernay's documentary. 13th is nominated for an Oscar. It's an incredible documentary about, you know, the prison industrial complex and the 13th Amendment that just sheds light on our nation's history in a way that I think a lot of people need to um, be exposed to. So you kind of have to do a little bit of work as well. Francesca Ramsey is a comedian, actress, blogger, and the keynote speaker of the MLK Days of Dialogue here at the university. Francesca, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us for Open Spaces. If you missed any part of the program or want to hear one of our stories again, you can find them at our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. There you can also explore old shows, suggest stories for future shows, and find links to our podcast that's also available on iTunes. Anna Rader is our web editor. We also invite you to visit us on Facebook, and all of our reporters can be found on Twitter. You can find me at Melody Edwards 3 And I'm at C. Ballard News. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News. 